a short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War Show, episode 18, Raymond. Hello, how's it going? I love that music, it's so ominous. I know, fucking man, every time I know we talk about it, but Joffre Horta Antonio. He's got it going on. Our Spanish composer, man, he's good, man, he's good. Mm, mm. Are we talking about... Gets me in the mood (laughs) for talking about Cold War, that is. podcast. So, in our last anyway. episode, yeah. we sort of talked about uh, Stalin and Churchill's first mano a mano. And in this episode, we're going to start off with Roosevelt and Churchill's first mano a mano during the war. Because right. you made the point on the last show, this literally was two plus one. And so these two got to get together to get their story straight before they meet Stalin, who... They absolutely don't trust, but need at this point. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, they had met before we remember the Atlantic Charter meeting, before the U.S. got involved directly in the war. But this is their mm-hmm. first war summits in Casablanca. Nice. And just to let everybody know, Stalin did use his copy of the Atlantic Charter that he did not sign as toilet paper. That's what he thought of it. So uh, January 1943, uh, they secretly approved a plan to finally launch their second front, the Western Mm -hmm. Front of France in 1944. Okay. But uh, that was like, (laughs) that's a year and a half away. Like, like, look, we said we were going to do it last year in 1942. Then we said we're going to do it in 1943. We're not really going to do it in 1943. Let's just do it in 1944. It's kind of like... Those curtains, those curtains yes. in Fox's room. I keep Chrissy keeps telling me we're she gonna, wants me to put up. I like I do. Yeah, like, I'll do it. I'll do it I'm next gonna, weekend. I'm I, gonna, absolutely, I'm going right. to do it next weekend. You got my word. Yeah, uh, they were like bad husbands to Stalin. Basically, is <laughs> where we're going with this. Uh, so yeah. Now, also one of the things that FDR and Churchill agreed upon in January 1943, mm-hmm. was uh, to step up the strategic bombing of Germany's urban population, something that Roosevelt had denounced previously, the deliberate terrorist right. bombing of urban populations. He now agrees to it. You got any thoughts on the yeah. bombing of urban populations, Ray? Well, oh my God, uh, there's a, and I didn't bring it, you, when you said that, it reminded me of something, there's a brilliant little speech, because it's Churchill, of course, he can, you, you can hate Churchill, but he writes very well. There's a short little speech he makes to FDR, shit, something about we have to, we have to get rid of the resources 
that feed the monster. We have to get rid of the people that sustain it, or I can't remember the words. But yeah, these people are the ones who are working in factories, building the tanks, building the planes. They're the young men who are signing up to war, the women who are helping with messages or, or doing whatever the women are allowed to do in Germany, which was different than uh, in Britain. But I mean, it was a total war. Anything you can do to weaken the other side, including kill massive civilians because it's not like they're going to kill enough civilians for them to rise up and take and, and bring Hitler low. That just wasn't going to happen. They were literally just trying to inflict as much damage as they possibly could to slow down his war machine on my own thoughts on that. Oh my God. I, I don't even know what to think because on one hand you're fighting for life and death struggle, but on the other hand, these people aren't directly hurting you. So, I mean, how in the fuck do you decide to bomb these people I, I wouldn't be able to sleep. I, it, it would destroy me to have to make that decision, which I know is a completely pansy answer, but I, I'm so torn on it. Well, look, the interesting thing What's is, your thoughts? Well, look, we'll, we'll probably touch on this over the course of the series, but um, mm-hmm. I hear justifications of bombing of urban populations in World War Two. you know, both the bombing of the, the um, traditional bombing, if you like, of places like Dresden, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit later right. in detail, and then uh, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with nuclear weapons a little bit later on, and the justifications of that. And then, on one hand, you hear Westerners justifying that as well as total war, as you say, and you have to take out, uh, you know, the the some of the um, operate the, the the places where they're building weapons or the the centers mm-hmm. of of uh, power, even if they're civilians. And then on the other hand, you hear people denouncing the 9-11 attacks on the US as being unjustified ah. acts of terrorism because they were tackling civilians and urban populations. And well, hold on. It is not Wall Street, the centre of the financial world, at least in the US, and the people that are working in Wall Street supporting the US's unofficial war uh, or invasions or attacks on uh, Muslim countries around the world, isn't that also then justified uh, on the same basis? Uh, you, you, yeah, it is so... It's very difficult to have your cake and eat it too. You can't justify the Western bombing of urban populations and civilians on one hand and then denounce it when it happens to you on the other hand as being out-and-out out terrorism. Right. Just because, so that's just because you're not engaged yeah. in a traditional war, maybe against Al Qaeda, right. or you know, from their perspective, they are in a traditional. They well, they are in a war. They don't care what your definition yeah. of traditional is. They see that you're yeah, coming over directly or indirectly through funding of Saddam Hussein or funding of Israel or whatever. You're bombing and, and killing uh, Muslims, right. so they're going to take the war to you in the only way they can. So. Again, not going to not going to spend a lot of time on it now, uh, and and I'm not going to say that I'm an expert on the moral uh, intricacies of that comparison, mm-hmm. but it is something I want to explore as the series goes on. Yeah, because that's that. I mean, because that's the tough questions that most people don't even begin to think about, much less try to answer. And that's you know you got to. You got to bring something. If you if you're going to do a, a podcast on the Cold War, you have to at least face the tough questions. That, with hindsight, hopefully we can at least explain why people made the decisions. You know, from 1945 until 1992, just to make it make more sense and give it context. Mm. 
So anyway, more on that later. One of the other things that they agreed to in Casablanca was issuing a public declaration that uh, they would continue fighting until their adversaries agreed to unconditional surrender. Now, Mm -hmm. this apparently was so that the other European nations wouldn't have any fear that the US and the UK would strike some kind of appeasement deal with the Axis powers. The Axis powers being Germany, Japan and Italy, just as a reminder. Right. But there was also a downside to this. There were a lot of people in Germany that were against Hitler that were either considering leaving, trying to kill him, whatever. We know there were several attempts on it, but there was a decent percentage of people who were like, okay, this is 43, things aren't you know, going well. But when uh, the Allies demanded unconditional surrender, it brought a lot of people uh, back to Hitler, even though they didn't like him personally, what he had done uh, to Germany. They were willing to fight that much harder because it, this obviously wasn't going to be like World War One, where we fight for a while, both sides get exhausted, we call a peace, we negotiate, we get to pretty much keep, you know, our land and our pride and whatever in our economy. This was total surrender. And that was just asking way too much for a lot of these very proud military men and a a lot of German civilians as well. So with one stroke, they were able to give Hitler allies that he did not have before. So yes, it was important on a political stage, but as far as going much further down on the military, on the military part of it, it helped Hitler become that much more popular with the people because they were fighting for themselves and for him at the same time. So they kind of screwed up, but it made total sense about why they did it. Yeah, and it also meant that uh, there wasn't going to be an armistice as there was in World War One, and so you couldn't have right. the Axis countries claiming they actually won the war afterwards uh, as Germany did right. after World War One. But this whole thing of unconditional surrender and what it actually means is going to become very important later on when we get to the bombing of Japan. Mm, Absolutely. Now, during the 10 months between the Casablanca conference and the first Big Three conference in Tehran in Iran in November 1943, when the Big Three meet uh, together in person for the first time, a number of things happened. We talked in the last episode about a lot of the uh, 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 things that happened during 1943. The Russians started to turn it around. Stalin dissolved the Comintern. The, the uh, US and the UK started to make some headway against the German and Japanese submarines. But also Roosevelt started to tone down his criticism of British colonialism, which, no. <laughs> which is important. <laughs> Uh, As we remember back in the Atlantic Charter meetings, he basically said to Churchill, according to the accounts from FDR's own son, look, yeah, we'll we'll support you in this war, uh, but part of the price for that is you have to, after the war, dissolve your imperialist trading block and open up the British Empire to American trade. And also this whole idea that came out of the Atlantic Charter that there would be self-government for all peoples of the world. But on the Mm -hmm. side, we're saying to the British, yeah, but, you know, that doesn't mean you or the French. You you. can keep your empires. Just there's um, the empires that we don't like have to sign up to, you know, independence of all of their occupied uh, countries. You, you guys can keep yours uh, if, for right. a while. But everybody anyway. else was going to be freedom reigns. But see, but you've got to think about, just imagine Ch- Churchill sitting there during the signing of the Atlantic Charter or whatever, when FDR says, 
your entire country's way of life as far as its economics. And we said this on the last show. They've got colonies all over the place, and you can call them commonwealths, whatever. But they were literally ripping out, you know, all of those resources, all of their money, making money. And they can only sell to Britain, Britain sell to them or whatever. And it was just this economic block. But all the all the benefits were going back to London, which is why London was so rich by the time World War II breaks out and they can afford to pay America for for a lot of their stuff. And so now FDR is basically saying, I'm coming to a certain degree. I'm coming after pretty much the British Empire on an economic level. So again, there's going to be some, some major changes. And we're going to see the shift from Britain and Churchill calling the shots of during the war to FDR in the United States. And it's going to be the subtle transition, but eventually the United States is going to take over and they're going to be the ones who are going to lead the cold war. And, and, and Churchill's going to have a decision to make. What do I do now that I'm no longer sitting in the driver's seat? Yeah. Yeah. This, and we're going to talk a lot over this in the next coming episodes about that transfer of global hegemonic power from Britain yeah. to the United States that took place uh, during this period. Um, during the uh, this sort of 10-month period, too, between Casablanca and Tehran, FDR also accepted Churchill's arguments that trying to deny the Soviets' domination in Eastern Europe would be pointless. Uh, yeah. you know, the, the idea Possession being is that... Possession is 11 tenths of the law. Exactly. They're going to have or, their they're sorry. going to have their army in these countries trying to stop them from politically dominating it. You know, it's pretty yeah. fucking hard, man. Not going to happen. Also, during this period, there was a lot of discussion in the U.S. Uh, between Roosevelt and his atomic advisors about how closely Britain should be involved in the Manhattan Project. Uh, and and part, as I understand it, part of the the concerns that the guys leading the uh, Manhattan Project had was that mm -hmm. the more information they shared between countries, the more open it was to being uh, intercepted by oh, both gotcha. the German and Russian spy networks. But uh, FDR countermanded his advisors and said, no, no, the Brits need to be included as an equal partner in this. And we'll talk about yeah. that more when we get to the episodes dealing with the bomb. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, and as far as I know, um, and I could be totally wrong, but yeah, as far as building the bomb, that was pretty much us. Obviously, we had foreign scientists in America. You know, there were some Italians and, and Germans and whatnot. But yeah, the, the British pretty much left it up to us because they were busy. They had their hands full. But yeah, I mean, I guess it was just that personal relationship between FDR and Churchill about, look, we're going to be doing all the work here. We're going to be building the bomb. But because you're my partner and I trust you. I'm going to tell you what we're doing. Uh, but again, again, that just shows the personal level of friendship because there was, besides that, there's really no reason to tell Churchill what's going on because you know he's going to tell the top people in his war cabinet. So you, you just got to wonder, yeah, that was pissing a lot of people off, but FDR, I think, was making a personal decision and not a political decision. Well, I think it was a little bit of both, actually, because I think FDR knew at this stage that he needed to keep Churchill happy and friendly uh, because he was mm -hmm. taking more of the brunt of things in Europe at, the, at that stage. Ah. Uh, and there was still, you know, possibly a concern from the American perspective that they needed to keep the Brits on side as well. Uh, the, the Brits could have caved in at any stage to... 
attempts to right. s- sign some sort of an armistice with Germany. Uh, that w- it was in a lay down Mazaire that they were going to fight through to the bitter end. They were running out of people. They were running out of money. They were running out of weapons, as we know. Yeah. Um, but at, at basically, at this point, during 1943, FDR agreed to everything that Churchill wanted uh, at their Casablanca right. meeting. So much so that one American officer who was there said, we might say that we came, we listened, and we were conquered, which our uh, Caesar <laughs> listeners will appreciate the reference there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, yeah, that's true. But, I mean, Churchill, for all of his flaws, was right. I mean, Italy was the weak spot. That's where you go. You don't land on the continent. You're not ready yet. Go to North Africa, jump over, and then go up that way. So, Strategically, he was right, but that's not what a lot of Americans wanted to hear because I think what Mussolini has taken out of power in May of 43. So it was the right thing to do. It just wasn't what a lot of American uh, high-ranking officers wanted to hear at the time. And they, and they got sick and tired of Churchill calling the shots because he wasn't, he wasn't American. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, also in 1943, there is the third Moscow conference. This is where mostly foreign ministers from the Allies met in Moscow. China was also included and Stalin. And mm-hmm. here they discussed the treatment of Austria and Italy after the war, the creation of the United Nations. And there was a thing called the Statement on Atrocities discussed. Now, this was something that had been written by Churchill. And it, it basically talked about uh, how the German high-ranking officers were going to be treated after the end of World War II, assuming that uh, the Allies were successful. It said mm-hmm. that evidence of atrocities, massacres and cold-blooded mass executions, which are being perpetrated by Hitlerite forces in many of the countries they have overrun and from which they are now being steadily expelled said that the Germans would be sent back to the countries where they had committed their crimes and judged on the spot by the peoples whom they have outraged. And for the Mm. Germans whose criminal offences had no particular geographical location, they would be punished by a joint decision of the governments of the Allies, which ended up as the Nuremberg trials. But um, I thought the interesting thing about this statement of atrocities is it only talks about the German atrocities, not the Russian, British, or American atrocities, which is handy. So he didn't write in there, if any any Allied troops were found to be raping, killing, whatever civilians, they will be severely punished. He, he left that part out. Yes, he did. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he meant to write that in there and just... <laughs> He's going to get to it later. Forgot. Uh, nothing right. about the Soviet atrocities in Poland, for example, the, or, or the, the Polish yeah. officers in Russia, actually, the Kachin Forest Massacre right. that we mentioned uh, earlier, I think in the previous episode. Um, and mm. nothing about future atrocities to be committed, as we mentioned earlier, the, uh, when the US and the UK bombed the fuck out of Dresden in 1945. <sighs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, just to touch briefly on that for people that that aren't aware of the bombings. uh, In February 1945, between two days, 13th and the 15th of February, uh, it was a special Valentine's Day surprise. 
722 heavy bombers of the British Royal Air Force and 527 from the United States Army Air Forces dropped more than 3,900 tonnes of high-explosive bombs and incendiary devices on Dresden. Uh, The modern estimates are around 25,000 people. The Nazis at the time claimed that there was sort of hundreds of thousands of people who died, but modern estimates are more like 25,000 people. Still a lot right. of people still, for two days. Still, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, but there, at the time in Dresden, there was between 100 and 200,000 refugees fleeing from the advancing Soviet forces oh, that were in the city. Right. So when we say, when you know, you said earlier on, well, these were munitions factories or weapons factories, people yeah. getting killed. It wasn't just that, man. It was like, potentially, we don't know the yeah. list, the full list, but lots of refugees just running for Absolutely. their lives. They didn't yeah. ask for this war, but uh, they, right. they were getting the fuck bombed out of them. Now, the interesting thing for people that want to justify this, these bombings, Churchill later wrote a memo where he said... It seems to me that the moment has come when the question of bombing of German cities simply for the sake of increasing the terror, though under Mm. other pretexts, should be reviewed. Otherwise, we shall come into control of an utterly ruined land. Now, when people try and justify these bombings by saying, well, we were taking out munitions factories, etc., these are Churchill's own words, simply for the right. sake of increasing the terror, though under other pretexts. Jeez. And, and you and you you got to think about it. I mean, when he says, um, "Come under control of an utterly utterly ruined land," you know, is he is he worried about the people? Is he worried about the infrastructure of the city? Again, when they take this over, they know all this is going to have to be rebuilt. And at some point, you've only got so much money to spend on, you know, reconstruction or whatever. So I can't tell. I don't know. Part of me is like, is he getting disgusted with the killings of the civilians? Is he okay with it? Is he thinking about post-war, you know, conditions for the people uh, trying to 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 rebuild their lives again? But, yeah, I, w- I would just really like to, to know what he was thinking at that point. Well, I think it's, it's quite like, obvious he, he, from what he wrote. It's He's not worried about the people. He's worried about right. the infrastructure, exactly as you said. Right? It? Yeah, yeah. It's like this. We've only we're only going to have so much money to to rebuild, and it would really be helpful if you didn't bomb every little building because we're going to need those once this is over to help rebuild Germany. You know that kind of stuff. Uh, if there's something I can just add to this, during the same meeting, they uh, came up with some uh, conditions for Austria and Italy. And then part of the uh, what they wrote out was, the annexation imposed on Austria by Germany on March 15, 1938, was considered null and void. Austria is reminded, however, that she has a responsibility which she cannot evade. The part- for participation in the war at the side of Hitlerite Germany, and that in the final settlement account, will be, will be inevitably will inevitably be taken of her own condition to her liberation. So they're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to make you a separate company country the way you were, but you do bear some responsibility. You have been helping Hitler and the way you can help yourself right now, especially in our eyes is to start to fight back, to start to resist Hitler. So they're like, even though there's really no chance of Austria doing anything to, to oppose Hitler, they're letting them know if there's anything, any trouble that you could cause for him, that would be greatly appreciated 
but the Americans are letting them know, the, the Allies are letting them know, we will hold you responsible. We understand what you're going through, but we will hold you responsible once this war is over. So they're just putting it out there. This is a part of that unconditional surrender. Everybody's going to be judged when this is all over with. Mm, even though, again, the civilians of these countries aren't the ones getting them into these wars. They, they, they get pushed exactly. along. They don't, they don't have a lot of say exactly. in it. The 1% is. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, that's the statement of on atrocities that the foreign ministers draft, well, Churchill drafted and they, they discussed. Uh, and this is all the setup for the first meeting of the big three, uh, FDR, Churchill and Stalin, that was held in the Soviet Union's embassy in Tehran, in Iran, from mm-hmm. the 28th of November to the 1st of December in 1943, uh, which turned out to be the single most important summit of the war. Now, before you jump into it, I, I just ca- caught this on YouTube, and I just had to share this with you. So it's it's um, November of 43. Things are looking pretty decent for the Allies. They're not certainly in the dark times that they were in 41 and 42. And so now it's time to I don't know if you want to call it kiss ass or, or buddy up to your to your pals or whatever. But when Churchill gets there, he awards Stalin the sword of honor for all of his country's efforts and, and, and all the, uh, the 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 courage and the, all the losses. But they're still in the fight. And so at the behest of King George VI, they give him the sword, which eventually Stalin is going to go, give to the leader of Leningrad, Voroshilov, you know, for resisting because of the great of the great siege of Leningrad. And because it was around Churchill's birthday, I think he was turning 69, uh, he was given a Persian-style hat, which he absolutely loved hats. He was given a silver cigar box, a silver tray, and the Sikhs, uh, the soldiers of the Sikhs, gave him a miniature paint, a miniature painted on ivory. So again, so he's getting gifts. They're about to give gifts. Everybody's getting gifts. They're going to be nice to each other first, but they are very quickly going to get down to business. And this is the part that I love. Stalin, for as intelligent as Stalin is, as, as crafty as he is, as devious and as untrusting as he is, he was tricked perfectly by Hitler. It absolutely worked. And now it's time for him to try to pull the wool over FDR. They're meeting for the first time. These Both of these men, FDR and Stalin, are going to go on a charm offensive and really see if they can possibly get along and and because this is because they are the two big men in the room Churchill is quickly going to be pushed to the side but these two men are going to try to get along because they know it's vital for both of them at least in the short term yeah you completely fucking left out the best part of the the sword story though man like oh i'm sorry i was waiting for you we i think we've mentioned it before but so as you said, the sword was uh, forged, especially uh, under the command of King George the Sixth, uh, as a token of homage from the British people to the Soviet defenders of the city during the Battle of Stalingrad. The sword of Stalingrad. Mm-hmm. It's presented by uh, Churchill to Stalin. Uh, he declared. I am commanded to present this sword of honor as a token of homage of the British people. Stalin kisses the scabbard, thanks the British. Uh, he then sits down and, and presents the sword to Roosevelt, who draws the blade and holds it up, says, truly, they had hearts of steel. Uh, a reference, I guess, to both the sword being made of steel and Stalin being the man of steel. Um, right. The sword's put back in the scabbard. 
Uh, and at the end of the ceremony, as you say, Stalin hands it off to uh, Voroshilov, one of his mm-hmm. oldest and uh, most loyal commanders, which seems to have taken Marshal Voroshilov by surprise. And he sort of takes <laughs> the sword, holds it up the wrong way, holding the tip of the scabbard. The sword slipped out and <sighs> fell. Oh, fuck. Uh, it either, depending on which version of the story here, it either hit him on the foot or hit the floor or was caught in time by somebody and returned to its scabbard. So I just thought that was the best part Get of the story. Get that weapon out of his hand. <laughs> Get the fuck. He's like this this old marshal who you would think would know how to handle a sword. But yeah, I posted some video to our Facebook page the other day of part of that ceremony, which is oh, okay. kind of cool to see. But as you say, uh, very quickly, these three guys get down to business. Roosevelt, uh, obviously, this is towards the end of his life. He's a very old, he's a very yeah. sick man. I mean, they were all about yeah. the same age. He was, the, I think, the youngest of the three, uh, but not very well. He had to travel 7,000 miles, which is a long trip for uh, a sick man. It was yeah. also Stalin's first trip outside of the USSR since coming to power. Wow. Nearly, what, uh, 20-odd years, 25 yeah. years ago. Uh, no, so, yeah, it was 20-odd years ago. So um, it was also, by the way, Stalin's first and last trip <laughs> in an aeroplane. Fuck this shit. I'm not doing this. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he did part of the trip in a train where, according to one of the guys who was with him, he said Stalin didn't read any notes, just sat there by himself in silence for three days, staring out the window. Ah, Obviously planning, just making his plane against his yeah. Then he had to catch a plane for the last part of it, and he refused to fly in a plane piloted by uh, this high-ranking member of Soviet aviation, General Golovinov, uh, and preferred to be flown by somebody less em- less eminent. Apparently, Stalin said, "General colonels rarely fly airplanes. We'd be better off flying with a colonel." Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Hey, really? Does this guy really fly airplanes much? Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. No, fuck that. I want this somebody who does it desk. every day. You know, yeah. Give me a real plane. He yeah. later said that his ears hurt for two weeks afterwards. Oh, he should have come to my ears, nose and throat clinic. We could have helped him. Helped him. <laughs> Stalin, uh, of course, had the uh, Soviet embassy in Tehran bugged so no, he could listen to what no Roosevelt way. and Churchill were saying about him behind his back. <laughs> Just like he'd had Churchill's residence in in Moscow bugged back in 1941. But nonetheless, Roosevelt and Stalin in their first meeting appeared to hit it off, much to the chagrin of Churchill, who Mm. felt sidelined by FDR during these meetings. He keeps wanting to have private meetings with Roosevelt to sort of align their strategy, but FDR keeps saying no he doesn't want Stalin to have any reason to feel like he's being gangbanged. No, no, not gangbanged. Well, maybe, maybe a little bit. No, but see, I mean, to, to, 
To me, that's a good point. F- FDR is like, no, we can't sit here and whisper because, like you said, the entire place is bugged. They'll hear us. But I, I kind of think that FDR screwed up. It's like, okay, I can't be seen talking privately to you, but good God, let's come up with some kind of form of communication. But because he kept snubbing him, it did hurt Churchill's feelings. And they, there probably were some very important things they needed to talk about or to consider. But like like we said earlier, um, FDR and Stalin are both trying to test each other, kind of see what the other person's made of. They're both on a charm offensive. And it seems to be working, at least on the surface. These guys are just hitting it off wonderfully because they both, at this point, still need each other. And this is sort of the point, uh, you know, we talked earlier about how FDR in 1943 gave Churchill everything he wanted, but this is the point where it starts to change. Once Roosevelt actually meets Stalin face-to-face and gets to take his measure, uh, he starts to assert U.S. predominance over Great Britain. He uh, even mocks... Churchill in front of him <laughs> in front of Stalin he sort of um, yeah. talks about makes some snide remarks about Churchill being some sort of old fashioned British imperialist makes jokes at his expense takes the piss out of him a little bit uh, <laughs> but of which, course the communist loves that yeah. Stalin loves Stalin eats it up and Stalin's also always believed and, and this just supports this theory that the U.S. and the U.K. Aren't, don't really have aligned interests. You know, part yeah. of Marxist and Leninist theory and Stalinist theory is that capitalist countries can't ever really cooperate because they're competing against each other's interests. And so he mm. was trying to drive a wedge between the two and exploit their differing views. And they did have differing views. Churchill was Absolutely. an imperialist. Um, yeah. FDR was an anti-imperialist and a capitalist, and they and you know they wanted to break into the imperialist trading block, etc. Uh, truth be told, they actually cooperated much better than Stalin believed they would or could. But right. he kept trying to play them off against each other, and Roosevelt kind of played up to that deliberately or not. Right. He later, FDR later wrote to Ambassador William C. Bullitt, which is just the coolest fucking name, Bill Bullitt, <laughs> man. Bill the Bullet. It's my porn name. He Bill the Bullet uh, wanted a containment policy against Russia. Yeah, which you know we'll, we'll get into that later on. The whole uh, George Kennan containment policy. We're going to do a lot on that. But FDR wrote, "I just have a hunch that Stalin is not that kind of man." Harry Hopkins says he's not, and that he doesn't want anything except security for his own country. And I think that if I give him everything I possibly can and ask, ask nothing from him in return, noblesse oblige, he won't try to annex anything and will work with me for a world of democracy and peace. Okay, I'm sorry. I got to call bullshit on this. Why would a communist work for a world of democracy? But anyway, my thing is William Bullitt, who I have run across several times in other episodes, uh, this man has been around. He has been to France. He has been to Russia. He has been to different places. And he he certainly is um, more worldly or cosmopolitan than FDR, if you can possibly believe that. But he is pretty accurate when it comes to Stalin. And this is the part where, and no one's perfect, but FDR kind of 
disappoints me or he is allowed he allows Stalin to bamboozle him but yeah he's literally thinking if I placate this guy as much as I can afford to and I don't press him like Churchill seems to be doing then he I won't ruffle his feathers and he won't do what I don't want him to do which is after the war keep going and keep annexing or whatever so hopefully I can charm this guy I can appease this guy which is pretty much what Stalin said when uh, he was trying to get his men to placate Hitler, and it wasn't working, so he took over negotiations himself. So FDR, to some degree, and of course we'll never know the truth because he didn't write this down, he didn't keep a diary, he does get fooled by Stalin. He gives Stalin too much credit, and Stalin was playing him very nicely. And again, no one's perfect, so he doesn't listen to Bullet, his advisor, and that's the whole point of having advisors, to give you advice, and you should consider that. But at the end of the day, he chooses to some degree trust Stalin. Yeah, I I, I don't accept that uh, interpretation. Well, you're fucking wrong. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I don't I'm accept sorry. that interpretation. No, I'll tell you why. Number one, when you say okay. he didn't trust his advisor, he had many advisors, and Harry Hopkins was That's his true. closest friend, and he and he did right. and he did trust Stalin. Did trust yeah. Hopkins. And secondly, um, we know from again the opening up of the archives that Stalin also believed that he and Roosevelt could work together after the war. This wasn't a one-sided thing. You're, you're making it sound like Stalin was just playing FDR for a fool. And that's, that's not the case. I mean, Stalin was keeping his options open, let's, let's be honest. Right. But he also believed that it was very important. I mean, he knew that the USSR that was going to come out of World War II completely fucked Economically, militarily, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the the, the 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 number of people that they had, uh, particularly adult males, uh, the, the, and it was going to take him decades to rebuild. Now he didn't want to be in a war for those decades, so he knew he needed right. to have peace with the U.S. and the U.K. He did want to have at least he wanted to buy himself a couple of decades of peaceful relationship with these other major powers, and believed that. He uh, that they would uh, all keep their spheres of influence and they would keep out of each other's way and they would have some sort of a working relationship where they didn't get in each other's uh, faces, you know. Right. Let, let, me, let me counter that because as we are about to find out, Stalin, who is old school, certainly believes in spheres of influence because that's how it's always been done. But that flies right in the face of what the Allies are going to propose. But here, here's the reason I think that because no, the, the U.S. is going to propose. Churchill wanted the, to keep yes. Churchill. Right, right. I'm sorry. I meant, I meant as well. It was exactly. The U.S. I, yeah, FDR. The U.S. that right. didn't like spheres of influence because they wanted open right, but, trade. Anyway, keep going. Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, but like you said earlier, FDR is soon soon going to be the senior partner in this, and so it kind of doesn't matter what uh, what uh, Churchill wants. But putting atomic weapons aside, at this point in the history, wars are fought with tanks, planes, and men, and, and artillery pieces. And the only way you can really defend your territory is to have defense in depth, which means that Stalin cannot, by that very definition, give up a lot of the land of other people's land that he has taken over because he is going to make damn sure, and he is totally right to do this, he's going to make damn sure this never happens again. Now that Russia's industrialized, he is going to put a shit ton of tanks, planes, guns, men, whatever, um, on their borders. And it's not going to be Russia's borders. It's going to be the border of whatever territory they've taken because he is going to have a massive defense in depth. And because of that, he is going to have to keep some of the territory that he's taken. He knows he's not going to give it up. And he knows if 
FDR is not going to like that. And so he's already, to me, he's already trying to charm him, trying to uh, to set a personal relationship with him because he knows eventually the bad news is coming. I am not giving up what I have taken because I can't, because I can't allow Russia to suffer yet again through all of this to be attacked out of the West. Look, yeah, look, I, 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 this, this, this idea that FDR was bamboozled by Stalin, I don't believe it. A, right. FDR yeah, was, that's too hard of a term. FDR, yeah, yeah. FDR was no schmuck, man. Three-term Absolutely. president in a fucking wheelchair <laughs> uh, pulled the country out of the Great Depression, got them ready for yeah. World War Two, started the Manhattan Project, uh, led them, you know, re-fucking militarized, well, not re, militarized the U.S. for the first right. time, took them from backwards. Uh, militarily, globally, the beginning yeah, the 16th, of World War Sixteenth largest army. Yeah, before he's like, no, we got to be number one. By the yeah. end of World War Two, which he he doesn't survive to see the end of, just but by the end of it, they're the military and economic superpower of the planet, the last one standing. Uh, right. And you know that was all FDR. So I mean, he was yeah. he was no fool. No, he. Absolutely. And I yeah. don't We're believe gonna, yeah. he was being naive about Stalin. I think Stalin was genuine in his desire to work with FDR. Now, that all changes when FDR's dead and Stalin has to do with tr- deal with Truman and Truman's a cunt. Dickhead Truman. Yeah. Right. Stalin's like, well... And, and Stalin, we know from his own, from the archives again, he was genuinely saddened and distraught right. when FDR died. Yeah. He was like, well, fuck, this was my guy. And, yeah. and even with... You know, so Churchill gets kicked out of office. Right. FDR's dead, and we'll get to this in later episodes, but Stalin was like, well, fuck, you know, all the rules are off now because, uh, anyway, I'm dealing with this dickhead who's going to drop a bomb on Japan and exactly. not even uh, tell me about it and, uh, and he, not bring me yeah, in the loop the, and whatever. Exactly. And he, this is the guy that said, we should help Germany fight Russia, we should help yeah. Russia fight Germany. Yeah, we'll so them both he knows try. he's dealing with... Exactly. So he's going, oh, fuck you. So yeah. I, I, I think Stalin... Potentially, an FDR could have worked something out, uh, but mm. FDR didn't survive long enough, and the, it, all, right. it all changed. So anyway, yeah. uh, well, how much? We've got 15 minutes left. So, ah, oh, fuck. Yeah, okay, let's get into it. So, yeah. the, as I said, the US is starting to play the dominant role now uh, about breaking up British imperial trading blocks. It's a pivotal moment. Uh, for the Anglo-American relations at Tehran. British foreign policy, let's remember, since the Elizabethan era, 
right. had been based on a balance of power in Europe. London always trying to make sure that no one country could dominate the continent. So they would, they would, you know, they'd be enemies with France at one point, then allies with France at the next right. point. They're allies with Russia, enemies of Russia. Their policy was always to keep Europe divided, divide and conquer. And it worked brilliantly. It, it did. really did. But yeah. after Tehran, the their fear was that there wouldn't be any uh, substantial country left in Western Europe yeah. for Britain to ally with. So yeah. they would find themselves basically up against one last remaining European power, the USSR. And mm-hmm. then they had the other one across the Atlantic, the United States. And they were going to have to choose which yeah. one of those they allied with. And there's obviously no real uh, choice there. They're going to ally themselves right. with with the US. But it was obvious who the senior partner in that relationship was going to be. And again, we have to yeah. keep reminding people. The, 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 I know a lot of Americans think that America came out on top after World War II just because America's fucking awesome and Jesus, and Jesus you know, invented America to be fucking awesome. That's uh, actually in my history book. Yeah. Jesus is fucking awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus invented America to be fucking awesome. Again, you have to remind people that for the first half of the 20th century, uh, there were two major fucking wars in Europe that involved all of these major economic powers that got totally yeah. wiped out economically, militarily, yep. and their generations of adult males just gone. Millions yeah, and millions and of the millions of adult gone. males wiped out. And yep. and, and in, particularly in World War II... Uh, the UK such, such wider destructive absolutely the UK yeah. was wiped out economically there was only you know four or five hundred thousand British uh, died in World War Two, but economically they were, yeah, they wiped, were wiped out and stretched yeah. so thinly they had to get out of their empire and they were forced to abandon their empire by the US so the US came out on top partly because of uh, you know, a number of reasons I mean no no Doubt Fucking that, awesome. uh, yeah. Jesus uh, gave America uh, <laughs> industry. Their their industrial right. capability was scaled up and was uh, yeah, and it was untouched. Diminished. It was unscathed. You know, and yeah. it was unscathed because they hadn't been they hadn't suffered an invasion. Uh, their shit hadn't been bombed out of them. They didn't lose anywhere near as many people as Germany or Russia did. Um, right. And also, you know, slaves. Well, slaves were pretty fucking good um, for a couple of hundred years. Uh, you invaded lots of Mexico, took lots of Mexico mm-hmm. and land from the Indians. So there was a yep. lot of reasons why the U.S. had uh, ended up on top. Uh, you know, but mostly Jesus, uh, we have to say. Mostly that was all part of Jesus's plan. When <laughs> Who he, was white and had blonde When hair. he invented the United States, according to the Mormons. Um, right. So... <laughs> Here comes some emails. No, I don't think we have any Mormon listeners. Um, okay, good. Yeah. So where where do we get up to? Jeez. Uh, okay. So the the uh, another thing that happened in Tehran is let's finish Tehran before we wrap up here. So the U.S. wanted the U.S.S. support in the war against Japan. Stalin agreed mm. in concept that yeah. uh, <laughs> nicely put. Oh well, no, I'm serious. I mean, they just didn't settle. No, on no, the, no. The I, final I totally details. because yes, I I agree with you in theory. However, I do have a shopping list. Yes, 
Uh, he yeah. said, look, once once we finish with the Germans, we will support you with in Japan uh, against right. the Japanese. But I also have a price. And uh, because... He, the 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 Red Army had been fairly successful at this point, and were obviously taking the brunt of uh, the German military machine, and were going to be the major, mm-hmm. uh, what should we say, the the major component of the defeat right. of Germany. He could demand certain things, and he knows that, and he puts it on the table, and he gets away with it. And one of those things is uh, that the U.S. and Britain would accept. Soviet domination of Eastern Europe after the war. They would also support the Yugoslav partisans with the communists led by Tito in mm-hmm. uh, uh, Yugoslavia and uh, would agree to a westward shift of the border between Poland Ooh. and the Soviet Union. And uh, Roosevelt had to concede to those yeah. demands. Also, no choice. Stalin wanted uh, the Kuril Islands, which are islands in the Western Pacific between Japan and the Kamacha Peninsula of Russia. He wanted mm-hmm. the southern half of the Sakhalin, uh, which is a large island also in the North Pacific Ocean, just north of Japan, and access right. to uh, Darin, Darin or Dalian, which is a major seaport uh, in the Liaoning province of China, which was an ice-free port, and also Port Arthur nearby, the Lushan port in northern yeah. China. These were important ports for Russia. They needed ice-free ports to get shit in and out of Russia. Yeah, and he, he knows this is the moment. If he's ever going to go for it, this is the moment because he has got FDR. And and for you Americans out there, you're sitting there going, why in the hell does FDR need Stalin's help in defeating Japan? Because even though, you know, by 43 things are looking, the late 43 things are looking good for us, it's still going to take a long time. It's because America is fighting on two fronts. It's going to take time. It's going to take money. And we're going to lose a lot of men. And because the world had been at war for such a long time, we just want this over. We want Stalin in to help us as much as we can, even though America, if they weren't fighting in Europe, and eventually that obviously is going to be over. We could take Japan with no problem. But everybody in America is tired of this. We're tired of uh, losing our people. We just want this done. So anything that uh, FDR can bring in another player, he is going to do it. Even if he has to sacrifice a lot of territory, let's be honest, it's not American territory. So FDR is going to give Stalin what he wants. And really, there's not much he can do about it. He's doing the best he can with what he has left. We should point out, too, that at this point, the Soviets had a non-aggression pact with Japan and the the Japanese were kind of hoping that they would keep it that way or maybe even support (laughs) them. Uh, Again, the Japanese know that the uh, communists aren't really friends with America. Right. Uh, They're they're hoping there's some wiggle room there. Yeah, yeah, they're holding out for that. And there's diplomatic uh, notes going backwards and forwards between the Japs and the Soviets for the next few years trying to uh, maintain that uh, non-aggression pact. Um, But this, this... Request And we have to really, really make this point. The Americans requested the Soviets yes. join them in the war against Japan. And actually, in, in, in sort of requested, I guess, demanded that they invade Japan. And the Soviets agreed. Now, this is going to become very important when we get to August 1945. To remember that mm-hmm. the U.S. asked the USSR... Yes to invade Japan. It was part of the negotiations. Because I've, yeah. I've mentioned this a few times uh, on Facebook and I've had Americans weigh in and say, what? 
We never, we never wanted the Soviets in Japan. That's bullshit. Why would we want the Soviets in Japan after what they did to Germany? Like, well, actually, right. that didn't happen until after the war, uh, you dumb fuck. And B, uh, <laughs> B, yeah. uh, actually, they did read the history. The U.S. strongly requested uh, Soviet support in the war against Japan. Yeah, because let me, let me just flip that real quick for the Americans out there, because um, FDR could have easily said, you know what, Stalin, you and your country have been through so much. We really just want you to focus on Germany, finish that up. Thank you for everything you've done. We will, we will now that, that the war in um, Europe is going to start to wind down, we'll gear up more in, um, in the Pacific, and we will take out Japan. Thank you for everything you've done. We've got this. No, that's not what he said. That's not what he was thinking. He needed as much help as he could get because Japan, even though they were starting to lose at this point, the Americans are still losing men. They're, they're losing ships and planes, and they don't want to do that, and they want this over with as soon as they can, so they're asking for as much help as they can get from wherever they can get it. And that was the political reality at the time. Now, Stalin was obsessed with uh, borders because he believed that without extending the Russian borders, Russia would remain vulnerable. Like, we have to keep reminding people that Russia had been invaded three times between 1914 and 1941. So this isn't theory here. Security, Russia's security is absolutely the most important thing to Stalin, as it should be for a leader of a country that's been invaded three times in his living memory. (laughs) Stalin tells Churchill, this is life or death for us. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Now, Poland was part of that, but Poland was also an important issue for the UK as well. As I mentioned before, and Charlin explained to Churchill, sorry, Charlin, Churchill explained to Stalin, the UK entered the war against Germany to defend Poland's independence. So protecting Poland was a key issue for the UK, and it was going to be very difficult for Churchill back home if he uh, yeah. sort of did deals regarding the future of Poland. Out. Because right. his opposition, his political opposition, something that he had to worry about, and Stalin not so much. Well, you know, it would look bad for him if he was cutting deals uh, with regard to Poland's future independence when that was the reason they went to war in the first place. But there's more to this story that I want to drill down into that people may not be familiar with. Mm -hmm. So the UK and Poland signed an alliance in 1939 after the Munich agreement that, remember this uh, appeasement agreement they did with Germany. They said, look, sure, you can take Czechoslovakia. That's fine. Who gives a fuck about Czechoslovakia? <laughs> but if you take any other countries, and particularly right, Poland, <laughs> they, right. they, yeah, we're going to draw the line, really. So the UK and France agreed to support Poland should it be invaded by, quote, any European country, end quote. We're not going to mm-hmm. say by who. We're not <laughs> going to cast aspersions or point fingers. Right. But should they be invaded, we're going to come to their support. But European country. at the time, they didn't really intend to do much if it happened. And this is uh, backed up by uh, quotes from a variety of people. On the day that Britain signed this alliance with Poland, Lord Halifax, Foreign Secretary uh, between 1938 and 1940 of the UK, one of the architects of the Munich Agreement, stated, right. we do not think this guarantee will be binding. <laughs> They wrote it on the back of a napkin. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, if you get invited, if you get invaded, we'll we'll we'll, we'll come ass. and support you. But it's not going to happen. So we'll, we'll, <laughs> don't worry about 
Like, really? Right. We've spoken here. Hitler's got no interest in Poland. Don't worry about it. No, no, nope. Not going to happen. We're not going to... Listen, guys, look, I know I know we signed this deal, but really, it's, it's never... It's never... You're never going to have to worry about it. Don't worry about it. Scare Hitler. One uh, British diplomat, Alexander Cadogan, who was the permanent undersecretary for foreign affairs, wrote in his diary, Naturally, our guarantee... Natu- <laughs> I said a pompous British accent. Naturally, our guarantee does not give any help to Poland. It can be said that it was cruel to Poland, even cynical. If, if I can add to that real quick, see, and because of that, Hitler's thinking was, and, th- and this is in the history books, you can go look it up. He goes, if, now that I've got a non-aggression pact with Stalin, if I invade Poland, it will be over with so fast in a matter of weeks. Britain literally can't help Poland. It's not like they can hurry up and get a whole bunch of uh, troops and tanks or whatever past me into Poland and have a united front. So it'd be a moot point. Why would they declare war on me over Poland when they can't do anything about it? So, and again, that was his thinking. And to a certain degree, he was right. There was absolutely nothing they could do to help Poland. Is this like a future gesture or whatever? But it was hope it would give Hitler pause. And of course, it did not. As the Polish found out. Uh, Polish right. Polish historian Pavel Wajokowicz wrote, nice. Polish leaders were not aware of the fact that... Can you do a, sp- a Polish accent? It would sound like no, I'm a joking. Russian accent. I'm, so, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I can sorry. say... That's good for me. That's Polish uh, swearing that my grand- <laughs> Polish grandfather taught me. Of course. Of course it is. Polish listeners can tell me if that actually means anything. I've asked Polish people before and they say oh, something about dog's blood or something. <laughs> I don't know what it means. My grandfather would never <laughs> tell me what it meant. But everyone in our family can say it. <laughs> anyway, he, uh, this historian wrote, Polish leaders were not aware of the fact that England and France were not ready for war. They needed time to catch up with the Third Reich and were determined to gain the time at any price. The uh, Polish journalist Stanislaw Machowicz, who was uh, the prime minister of the Polish government in exile later on from 54 to 55, he stated in the late 1940s to accept London's guarantees was one of the most tragic dates in the history of Poland. It was a mental aberration and madness. The uh, Pol- when they signed this uh, treaty, uh, Poland asked for a military loan of sixty million pounds, and the mm. British said, "Tell you what, we'll give you nine million, which was less than they gave Turkey at the same time." Oh my God. Uh, yeah. There were the Polish contingent uh, went and had negotiations with the British, and I've read some of the accounts of this. It was a complete fiasco. Yeah. After uh, lengthy talks, the British reluctantly pledged to bomb German military and installations if the Germans carried out attacks in Poland, but uh, they didn't really plan on doing it. The Polish ambassador to Britain, to Britain Edward Rasinski, called the negotiations a never-ending nightmare. So, yeah. on the surface of it, yes, the Britain, the, the British cared about Poland. In reality, though, not so much. Yeah. Was, and again, you have to look at it from the other side. They weren't literally ready. Like you said, they had to gear up for war. They were years behind Germany when it, come to, to Germany when it came to rearming the number of tanks, planes, ships, uh, and all the support stuff. And so... It was more. It was more of a gesture um, than anything else because they could not back it up. Not because they 
didn't want to or they didn't care about Poland. They literally could not back it up between their current commitments and their different parts of their empire, mostly the north, uh, the Middle East because of the oil and North Africa. Um, they they just didn't have what it what it took at the time. And again, it was just a gesture hoping to stall Hitler. But because he got his non-aggression pact with Stalin, he didn't have to worry about it's, the Britain. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of like me saying, yes, Ray, if, if you ever owe the mafia a million dollars and they're going to kill right. you, I will come right. up with the money. Oh, yeah. I don't have the money. <laughs> There's no chance of me ever having the money. But right. I will. I've got your back. Don't worry, Ray. Oh, thank you. I've got your back. And that makes me feel better. In theory. By the time in I theory. come up with the million dollars, you'll probably be dead. But, yeah. you know, in theory, you can sleep better at night because, you yeah. know, yeah. I've got you your got back. you got my back. Yeah. Damn right. Anyway, FDR and Churchill agreed in principle to Stalin's plan. Uh, the Polish, like the Czechs back in 1938, didn't really get any say in the matter. Churchill no. in his memoirs wrote, Stalin asked whether this was possible without Polish participation. I said, yes. And that was when this was all informally agreed. Between ourselves, we could go to the polls later. <laughs> Look, we'll agree on the future of Poland now. Now. And once we've agreed, then we'll go tell the polls. It's fine. What, what are they going to do? Seriously. What, what are they going to exactly. do? Say no? Literally, exactly. Mr. Eden here remarked that he had been much struck by Stalin's statement that afternoon that the polls could go as far west as the odour. He saw hope in that and was much encouraged. Stalin asked whether we thought he was going to swallow Poland up. Eden said he did not know how much the Russians were going to eat. How much would they leave undigested? Stalin said the Russians did not want anything belonging to other people, although they might have a bite at Germany. Yeah, explain that last sentence. I don't want anything else, but... You know, since they're the one who caused all this, yeah, might take a bit of Germany. So he's again, he there's there's these little hints in there that he's out for more than just defending himself. I think we talked about the Curzon line uh, in a previous mm -hmm. episode. It'll come up more when we get to Yalta. But you know, uh, Stalin did say, "Look, I think we need to amend the border with Poland. We need a little bit more <laughs> land, but they can move down sure. into Germany as well. We're not going to take okay with that. We're not going to take yeah. away the entire amount of real estate. We might have to be some resettlement of people here, but we we, we need to extend yeah. our borders uh, a bit. Everybody just yeah, take the lines on a map and just shift left. Yeah. Just shift everything left until we're happy. Do we need to ask Poland? No, don't don't bother asking yeah. Poland. No we'll one, get to him later. Yeah, no one cares. I'll send him a memo. Much, really. Yeah. Uh, before yeah. we before we wrap up, I want to finish this section on Tehran. So the Yugoslav partisans I mentioned before, this is the National Liberation Army, uh, the mm -hmm. Yugoslav Resistance, and it was led yes. by the Communist Party of Yugoslavia. It was the most effective resistance movement in mm -hmm. occupied Europe, and its commander was Marshal Josip Broz Tito, the big titty. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Let's call him that from now on. We've also got a big yeah, they, titty they were and a little titty effective. in our uh, Caesar show. They, this is the modern big titty. <laughs> yeah, they caused the Germans unnumbered headaches and deaths. They did a very good job. Tito, uh, big titty, who we will see more of as the show goes on. Uh, pretty impressive character. Uh, he was a Croatian, uh, seriously wounded and captured by the Imperial Russians during World War I, escaped from prison, joined mm. the Bolsheviks, participated in the October Revolution, 
and wow. then goes back home and leads the communists in uh, Yugoslavia. Be a lot more on him later in the series. He becomes a very important player in the Cold War, as people may know. Absolutely. Yeah. So then uh, they start talking about the invasion of northern France, the long-awaited Second Front, a.k.a. Operation Overlord. Woo! The, UK, yeah. the, the, the Brits and the Yanks go, look, I know, you've, I know we've said this before. You're probably <laughs> sick time. of hearing this. I know I've promised before. This time I'm gonna hang, mean it. I'm going to hang the curtains, but... This time we're really gonna really really no look really fingers cro- yeah. no no fingers behind crossed behind our backs this time that's right Joe Look we're, my hands. we're really hands. really gonna do it this time unless we don't yeah but you know really right. we <laughs> but up until that moment yeah consider it considered yeah it's like we're you, gonna do it. you're gonna have flying cars it's that's five right. years away I've I'm been hearing waiting. that my entire life five, flying cars in five, five years waiting. yeah. They promised yeah. him in 1944 they would launch a second front. And he was like, yeah, yeah. I've heard yeah, it all maybe. before, bitches. <laughs> he also, Stalin also expressed his fear that after the war, Germany would rearm itself within 15 or 20 years. Churchill Ooh. replied that if they didn't prevent war for at least another 50 years, he had betrayed right. his soldiers. Yeah, I can see him. I can see him saying that. You know, to, to go through all this and have to do it again in twenty, thirty years—that would just be too much. Now, to me, when Stalin says, "I'm afraid Ger- Germany is going to rearm itself in fifteen to twenty years," to me, he's—I think he's setting up something where later on he tests his uh, his partners. But I mean, I literally think he's he's playing a long, long, longer term game than just making a simple statement. And I don't know if we're going to get to it tonight, but but we'll see that that come up uh, pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, Churchill, uh, in his memoirs, says that he discussed with Stalin privately his plans for peace. He said, We we are the trustees for the peace of the world. If we fail, there will be perhaps a hundred years of chaos. If we are strong, we can carry out our trusteeship. There is more than merely keeping the peace. The three powers should guide the future of the world. I do not want to enforce any system on other nations. I ask for freedom and for the right of all nations to develop as they like. We three must remain friends in order to ensure happy homes in all countries. Mm. And it was during this meeting that uh, Stalin outlined, sorry, fucking FDR outlined for Stalin his vision for the future United Nations to be dominated by the four policemen or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The United States, (laughs) Britain, China and the Soviet Union, who would have the power to deal immediately with any threat to the peace and any sudden emergency which requires action. And now, Stalin it, yeah. wasn't a big fan. Yeah, I was going to say, this is where the cracks in the relationship really start to show. So Stalin's literally going to have a list of things he doesn't like. We're going to be the four policemen. Why is China a part of that? Just because they're a big populous country. They're not industrialized as, mu- as much as we are. Why, why should they get a say? And um, he's just going to really start to nitpick and not like this vision that is being 
described to him because it is not the way he sees how the future should play out. He preferred old-fashioned spheres of influence, as we said before, <laughs> yeah. which basically means, look, we'll have the right to influence the politics and the economies of these countries and you won't under- right. interfere and vice versa. You can have your own region yeah. influence without our interference. And the U.S. were fairly comfortable with this because that's basically the Monroe Doctrine that had been in place in exactly. the U.S. for the last hundred or so years. It's like... Because Jesus said so. You keep the fuck out of the Americas, <laughs> North and South America, Right. right? We got uh, this. That's us. We got this. Yeah, if you that's come, if ours. you come over and try and have any involvement, then we're going to get really fucking yeah. upset. My God, there's crying and slamming of doors going Uh-oh. on behind me here. It's probably Chrissy. Means it's probably time to go. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that was Stalin was like, well, uh, you guys have had that model for a while. The British have had their model similar right. to that. Uh, let's just do it that way. That works for me. But uh, this this new idea of the four policemen. FDR saw as a better model. But, of course, they were going to keep their model. We're going to keep the right. territories that we control. It's <laughs> even better. We're not going to give up all, you know, all of that Mexico, which we now call California and Utah and right. what, Texas, Texas and, and yeah, places yeah, like Arizona. that. We're not yeah, giving no. that up. No, no, no that's, that's now yeah. us. That, yeah. you, we don't want you to do that. Do right. as we okay say, we do. not as we <laughs> not do. Not as we do. That's our policy. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And and not to give too much away, I'm not going to say it, but later on in another meeting, Churchill is going, excuse me, Stalin is going to have a little saying for Churchill about little birds and how much power they should have versus the much larger birds. So he's going to put in no uncertain terms his thoughts on, on this idea of a future political world organization. That's right. And uh, Char- Stalin and Churchill will have their percentages deal that they come up with in a next yeah. in a later episode. Um, anyway, still in Tehran, all three uh, agreed that uh, uh, Iran should stay independent. Uh, mm-hmm. th- as we'll see, that doesn't last very long after the war. We'll remember that when we get to <laughs> 1953. Um, right. And the settlement for G- of Germany after the war was discussed at length, but they couldn't agree on the yeah. details. That no. gets left to the Yalta Conference in early 1945. So basically, the what they agreed to in this big meeting in Tehran, uh, December 1943, was support for the Yugoslav partisans, the Yugoslavian resistance, okay. that mm-hmm. Turkey should come into the war on the side of the Allies before the end of the year, that if okay. Turkey found herself at war with Germany, uh, and as a result, Bulgaria declared war on Turkey, the Soviet Union would immediately be at war with Bulgaria. Ooh. They agreed to the invasion of France, Operation Overlord, which would be launched in May 1944, the D-Day invasion. Yeah, right. And that yeah, the right. Soviet forces would launch an offensive about the same time uh, against the Nazis to prevent them from transferring their forces from the eastern to the western front. That's what they officially agreed upon. Yes. Now, I, want to, I just want to wrap up because we're running way over time with some stories that Churchill told uh, about this night. Mm-hmm. If I may, can I conclude with this yes. with your permission? Yes, please. It's so far past my bedtime. What the fuck? Yeah, okay. please. Because these are good stories. Churchill wrote, this was a memorable occasion in my life. On my right sat the president of the United States. On my left, the master of Russia. 
Together we controlled a large preponderance of the naval and three quarters of all the air forces in the world and could direct armies of nearly 20 millions of men engaged in the most terrible of wars that had yet occurred in human history. I could not help rejoicing at the long way we had come on the road to victory since the summer of 1940, when we had been alone, and apart from the navy and the air, practically unarmed against the triumphant and unbroken might of Germany and Italy, with almost all Europe and its resources in their grasp, Mr. Roosevelt gave me, for a birthday present, a beautiful Persian porcelain vase, which, although it was broken into fragments on the homeward journey... (laughs) And has been marvellously reconstructed and is one of my treasures. Good. As the dinner proceeded, there were many speeches, and most of the principal figures, including Molotov and General Marshall, made their contribution. But the speech which stands out in my memory came from General Brooke. I quote the account he was good enough to write for me. Halfway through the dinner, he says... The president very kindly proposed my health, referring to the time when my father had visited his father at Hyde Park. Just as he was finishing, and I was thinking what an easy time I should have replying to such kind words, Stalin got up and said he would finish the toast. Mm-mm. He then proceeded to imply that I had failed to show real feelings of friendship towards the Red Army, that I was lacking in a true appreciation of its fine qualities, and that he hoped in future that I should be able to show greater comradeship towards the soldiers of the Red Army. Oh, snap. I was very much surprised at these accusations as I could not think what they were based on. I had, however, seen enough of Stalin by then to know that if I sat down under these insults, I should lose any respect he might ever have had for me and that he would continue such attacks in the future. I therefore rose to thank the president most profusely for his very kind expressions and then turned to Stalin in approximately the following words. Now, Marshal, may I deal with your toast? I am surprised that you should have found it necessary to raise accusations against me that are entirely unfounded. You will remember that this morning, while we were discussing cover plans, Mr. Churchill said that in war, truth must have an escort of lies. You will also remember that you yourself told us that in all your great offensives, your real intentions were always kept concealed from the outer world. You told us that all your dummy tanks and dummy aeroplanes were always massed on those fronts that were of an immediate interest, while your true intentions were covered by a cloak of complete secrecy. Well, Marshal, you may have been misled by dummy tanks and dummy aeroplanes, and you have failed to observe those feelings of true friendship which I have for the Red Army, nor have you seen the feelings of genuine comradeship which I bear towards all its members." As this was translated by Pavlov, sentence by sentence, to Stalin, I watched his expression carefully. It was inscrutable. But at the end, he turned to me and said, with evident relish, I like that man. He rings true. I must have a talk with him afterwards. After we walked out of the room, the Prime Minister told me that he had felt somewhat nervous as to what I should say next when I had referred to (laughs) truth and lies. He comforted me, however, by telling me that my reply to the toast had had the right effect on Stalin. I therefore decided to return to the attack in the anteroom. I went up to Stalin 
and told him how surprised I was and grieved that she, he should have found it necessary to raise such accusations against me in his toast. He replied at once through Pavlov, The best friendships are those founded on misunderstandings. And he shook me warmly by the hand. It seemed to me that all the clouds had passed away. And in fact, Stalin's confidence in my friend was established on a foundation of respect and goodwill, which was never shaken while we all worked together, concludes Churchill. Nice. The, The operative words are while we worked together i like stalin just gets up and insults the guy in the middle of a toast yeah, just to see what he'll do yeah. just to see just, what he will do just to test his mettle yeah it was yeah, also was during one of these dinners in tehran where stalin proposed executing 50 to 100,000 german officers after the war <laughs> so that germany couldn't plan another one Makes sense. Roosevelt, apparently believing that Stalin was joking around, said, well, I don't know about 50,000, maybe 49,000 would be enough. <laughs> Churchill, on the other hand, was outraged. Yeah. And denounced He's the cold-blooded execution of soldiers who fought for their country. Eh, bombing civilian towns, not a problem with that. But executing no. soldiers, no, you can't do that. Because they fought for their country. He said that only war criminals should be put on trial in accordance with the statement of atrocities, which I talked uh, about earlier. He stormed out of that? the room. Yeah, he did. He stormed <laughs> out of the room, but Stalin went and said, uh, "My friend, I, it's joke. It's just joke. In <laughs> Russia, we, in Russia, we joke about such things. Uh, you know, come on." You know, fucking loosen up, my friend. Uh, <laughs> loosen it up. Smoke another stogie. Have some vodka. <laughs> Suck on this. Um, so that was it. Uh, and Churchill went back to the to the table. Yeah. So uh, in June 1944, a little bit later than May, Operation Overlord, the D-Day invasion, went ahead under the leadership of yes. Dwight Eisenhower. Much of the invading force, not to mention almost all of the weapons and material, came from the United States. American civilian and military decision makers are really uh, now controlling the liberation of Western Europe from the German occupation. And as I said earlier, this is the turning point in the UK-US relationship in many ways. And the next episode, we're going to get into the economics uh, taking place around about the same time, and we'll, we'll talk about that in detail. The Bretton Woods Conference, the gold standard, ah, yeah. the US dollar, etc., etc. Because don't ever forget, people, it's all about the Benjamins, it's all about the money. And I'm trying to remember at this point in the war, the, the unemployment rate of the United States was some incredibly low ass number. Um, so, yeah, that has all been wiped like out. That, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, what? I think it was like 4%. 3.4%. Yeah, somewhere around the yeah. exact, yeah, 3 point, But yeah, so so it's down there. So yeah, so between um, between with the money that we got from Britain and then Lend-Lease and stuff, but yeah, the American people are back to work. They're happy. They're not being bombed like everybody else. Yeah, it now makes sense to everybody, or it should make sense to everybody. This is why America it comes out of this as the superpower. So uh, what did we learn? Um the, fir- the big three meet for the first time. It goes mm-hmm. relatively well. They concede yeah. to a lot of Stalin's demands. Right. Uh, and the But rela- they can't... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but the, 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 the relationship between the US and the UK is uh, changing here. Yeah. FDR's put his yeah. big boy pants on. 
good for and not only not only that he had to get up because he's in a wheelchair but not only that but um the uh as far as what to do with germany after the war that's the sticking point that's the something they cannot cannot agree on at all that's going to have to wait for another meeting but like you said things are going pretty well for them that's just the one point they're going to have to hammer out the details later what to do with germany um, well, I think of it, I want to mention for younger listeners that there's a terrific book that you need to read if you haven't. Uh, 19, Lady Chatterley's Lover. 19, no, no. 1984 by George Orwell. Uh, I recently reread it, I don't know, for the fifth time, maybe. Uh, it's sort of one of those books I pick up every four or five years and reread. Uh, but it's it's based on sort of Soviet Russia and Orwell's fears for what was going to happen. It was written in 1948, uh, just after World War II, and his mm-hmm. concerns for how the world was going to play out. In it, uh, Big Brother, who everyone's heard of, is based on Stalin. Uh, Goldstein, who's sort of the hidden enemy, is based on Trotsky. Reread mm. it if you haven't read it for a while. It's fucking depressing. But, uh, but while you're listening to this important. series, it's a good time to reread it, I right. think, and uh, think about Orwell's concerns. Uh, it didn't play out the way he exactly thought, but then again, we do have Big Brother watching us in uh, in a different form That's than true. Orwell right. uh, imagined. Listen, uh, we've got lots of uh, reviews and new listeners today. So I'm going to run through the new heroes quickly, even though we're running way over time because we, we des- they deserve that. New Defcon 1 supporters, Steinus von Bechmann, uh, which is a great name. Congratulations on that name, sir. <laughs> Craig Burkett, <laughs> Vadim Kirillov, Mark Farr-Jones, Anthony Cunning, David Gales... Nandeshvar Hekma, Jeremy Bigness. Oh, another great name. <laughs> you want to see my bigness? <laughs> no, it's my name, really. Andrew McBath, Gavin Vanderwater, Caleb Peterson, Edmund Mottershead, Ashley Thomas, John Cork, Ben Manuel, Christopher Black, David Parks, Keith Richardson, Simon Pillat, Bill Stevens, Anthony Dar, Chris Newmeyer, Steve Vitmer, Timothy Lalonde, Tyrone Cleary, David Jalali, Iman Mora, Alex Hartman, Jordan Chennel Kearney, Clemens Ackerblom, Efrat Sharon, and Daniel Irwind are our new DEFCON 1 supporters. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, you. for your support. DEFCON 2, who we love even more, they even get to see a bit of nipple. <laughs> Casey Pierce, Ken Baby, and Martin Darlington. Oh, my Anne. MD has finally signed up to the show because I kept sending him emails telling him that we yes. were taking the piss out of him. On That's the show, right. and so he finally went and sent some gonna, cash. And our DefCon three who gets tongue, Carl Linkenbach. <laughs> Thank you very much, Carl. And uh, Thank you. Uh, uh, to read a review, all the, the form mentioned uh, Martin Darlington has written a review for this as well. He calls it an uncomfortable but compelling series. I've been a passenger on the Cam and Ray Information Express for three series now. The first two being Life of Caesar, now on to Augustus, and Life of Alexander. If you haven't listened to them, they're well worth it. I was hesitant about subscribing to this series as it is such contemporary history. But Cam and Ray have become the podcast version of an earworm. One of those tunes that you think you hate, but you can't get out of your head. I'm very glad I did sign up for what is a very modest amount, as what I'm hearing is deeply uncomfortable but very compelling. If you're someone who is curious about the world in which we live and you think you've observed recent history and current affairs with an open mind, you may find yourself shocked. 
There is lots of information given by Cam and Ray that we should know as the sources are freely available, but we don't because of the way we are fed right. our news and due to our unavoidable biases based on where we live or what we feel is important. They are quick Amen. to suggest that we shouldn't just believe them, but they do give the sources from whence they got their information and suggest we go and, in Cam's favourite phrase, drill down into it. I've done so in several areas, and they're right. It's all out there, but we aren't fed this information in mainstream media, which is where most of us get our news and therefore opinions. The delivery is just as irreverent as ever. The schoolboy bromance humour shouldn't offend anyone, although I look forward to Ray's impending visit to Australia, as then we can replace the Vegas anecdotes with the Brisbane ones. Yes, yes there are a few dirty or toilet-based jokes, but never anything too yeah. offensive. I will try and work harder on that. So That's sign right. up, listen in, and be amazed just how obedient a her we have been for our political and business masters even if we vehemently deny it and try not to get annoyed by cam's impressions i never knew that churchill sounded no. just like sean connery trying to be a russian <laughs> with a scottish accent it's a minor I point love it. as churchill would have said himself it's no insurmountable problem martin there's a moose loose about the hoose okay you know, that's my favorite part yeah Thank you, uh, Ray. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We are out here. one and all. We'll be out. back soon. Here's the outro. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.